Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us on this Easter Sunday. And if you're new here or just visiting, we do want to extend a special welcome to you. And if there are any questions that you may have about who God is, uh, any questions you might have about the church or who Jesus is or why any of these things are so important, uh, please come and talk to me after service is over, or you can talk to any one of our uh, other elders. Josh is an elder, and Pastor Dave's an elder. Ben's an elder back there. So come and talk to any of us. We are more than happy to speak with you, and so please do not hesitate. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 1014 if you are using a church Bible. Page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, uh, only you can save, and only you, by the Holy Spirit, can make uh, this passage alive to us and convict us of its truth and convince us of your love for us and how much better that is than anything this world has to offer. Would you please show us the glory of your Son, Jesus? Only you can do that. And so we ask this morning that you would do that for us that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would teach us to number our days, that you would give to us hearts of wisdom and give to us the faith that we need to believe all that it is that you tell us. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that we as believers and as Christians hold dear to our hearts. And the gospel is a message which directs the way that we live and what we live for and who it is that we live unto. The word gospel literally means good news. And it's the best and the greatest news that any of us could ever hear. But this good news does not make any kind of sense unless we first understand the bad news. And the bad news is such that humanity has turned away from our creator and our maker and our Lord. We were each designed to bear the image of God, to reflect his glory, to display who he is, and we are each designed to experience great joy in doing so. There is a reason why there is such a clear distinction between humanity and the rest of the animal kingdom. We have been made in God's image to enjoy relationship with him, and to reflect God himself in the way that we live, in the way that we love and create and worship. But the bad news is such that humanity has turned away from our creator and our God to live in whichever which way we want to live. And therefore, we bring harm to ourselves and to others. And the world, as a result, has become quite a mess. There's every kind of war, every kind of disease, a variety of natural disasters and cancers. There is every kind of conflict and drama and divorce and families breaking up and every kind of crime and murder and hatred and the like. You can read any news sources front page and see it all in living color, the horrors that humanity can do to one another. We're in the midst of watching a war right now and there are abject horrors and yet none of that is particular to only this war. But these are all the result and a product of human sin and our own rebellion against God himself. 
And while there may be different degrees of it, I mean, not everyone is as sinful as the next person. There are different degrees, absolutely, from the murderer to the one who just has that anger in the heart and doesn't act on it, from the one who commits sexual assault and the one who just lusts privately in their own mind. While there are different degrees, it is of the same kind, and we all contribute to what makes this world a broken and difficult place. This is the bad news, that humanity has turned away from our Creator and our God, and while humanity is also capable of very good things being made in the image of God, so often it is even that good can be marred by our severe flaws. If we were to understand the depths of it all, no one would have blamed God if He had just washed His hands of us entirely. But the good news in the backdrop of such bad news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The good news is that this God is a God of great love and mercy and long-suffering and patience and grace. And this is not the kind of love that we usually see within the world, where people of mutual affection therefore love each other, or they have similar interests and agreements on goals and therefore partner with each other. God's love for us is quite different. Romans 5 verse 6 tells us this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is unique in the sense that he poured out his love upon the unlovable. His love for us is given while we were doing the very things he hated. And there is nothing that we have done and nothing about who we are that can earn this kind of love from him. The reason why historically Christians have talked so much about sin and ungodliness is because it helps us understand the context for God's love. Our sinfulness is not the main point of the message. But our rebellion and wickedness and self-centeredness and self-absorption and vanity is the backdrop for God's love to shine. And so God loves us not because of some innate beauty or worth or value to be found in any one of us or how we perform or what we can earn or merit or how we comparatively measure up to the people around us. No, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the truth that gives hope to absolutely anyone. Now, why does Jesus choose to die? Because we each have to answer to our creator and maker and Lord. We each have to give an account for the way that we've lived. If we're being honest with ourselves, there is no way that any of us could ever stand before him. There are things in each of our lives that are shameful, and he is utterly holy and completely righteous. And with our rebellion and sin and with the wages of sin being death, Romans 6.23, we each deserve to die and to die eternally. God knows every word before it comes out of your mouth. He knows every thought before you think it. God knows about every single skeleton in your closet and even the very motives of your heart. But Jesus, the Son of God and God himself, who has no sin, and no rebellion, and not even an ounce of wickedness within himself or any skeleton inside of his closet. He lives a life that none of us have ever lived, utterly, perfectly, completely, righteously. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. 
and his love and kindness, his conviction and obedience, his purity, his righteousness. If you want to see the glory of God, you stare into Jesus' face. Jesus lives a life that we have been called to live but never did. And rather than hold that over our heads and to show to each of us how we will never measure up, Jesus takes his perfect life and he offers himself on our behalf. And he dies the death that he does not deserve. He dies the death that we deserve so that the punishment and the judgment which is due to us is given to him instead so that any and so that all who believe in him and put their faith in Jesus, trusting in him and not in ourselves, turning away from the previous way of living, this person will be saved. This is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus is our substitute and he bears our punishment, atoning for our sins so that we will never bear it ourselves. The wrath of God against unrighteousness, our penalty is placed upon Jesus while he hung upon that cross. That is how and that is why he chooses to die. The Bible tells us that he does this because he loves us and there is really no greater love than this. Jesus loves the unlovable. Jesus loves those who cannot pay him back. Jesus loves the imperfect. Jesus loves the broken, the sinful. And this is the greatest news that we could ever hear. That is Good Friday, which we celebrated two days ago. But if Jesus were to remain dead, he would merely be like thousands of others who have died by crucifixion. It's not enough that Jesus dies upon the cross. The good news is also that Jesus rises from the grave. And in doing so, Jesus conquers the two things that have conquered us for all time and generations, sin and death. He breaks both in his resurrection. We cannot be forgiven and we cannot be made new without the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The importance of the resurrection, the importance of Easter Sunday is that Jesus did not stay dead, but in rising from the grave, Jesus shows that the power of death has been broken and the power of sin over us has been crushed. And Jesus' sacrifice of himself on our behalf has been accepted by God for God raised him from the grave. And therefore it is that our punishment is paid entirely in full. And Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection for death will no longer hold his people in the grave. And his resurrection is a guarantee of our new life today and eternal life in the new age. And this Jesus will soon return for his people whom he loves and whom he calls his very own beloved. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now when the Christian by the Holy Spirit, realizes this message as being true and factual, but even more than that, applicable to the very needs of our hearts. Our lives are transformed. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, to convict us of these truths. And when we recognize and realize this love that God has for us, the believer no longer lives for the same things that we once lived for. And we do not dream the same dreams as our neighbors do who do not know God's dream nor do we share in the same ambitions. We begin to want different things for our lives. We begin to desire different things for our children and spend our money in ways that may not make sense to people who do not know God and spend our time in ways that stand in stark contrast to the watching world as well. And we begin more and more to live unto God than we live even unto ourselves. 
and we live more and more for a different kingdom than what can be found on this earth. This is called the new birth. And that is because it is so transformational that the best way to describe it, it's like the old person has died in a sense. And we are born anew, which is the only appropriate way to describe the genuine Christian. But while the gift of Jesus in the gospel is utterly free, there is definitely a cost associated with this gift. Because the Christian life runs opposite the unbelieving crowds. The believing life runs contrary to the world. And it can be very difficult and even lonely at times. And naturally, for Christians throughout the centuries, this newfound faith put them at odds with the people who did not believe what they believed. And it drew a line of distinction from those who did not see the value of Jesus, nor think of any of this as being good news at all, or even being relevant news at all. And this is the situation that we find first century believers in whom Peter's writing to about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And these Christians find themselves in a society that is becoming more and more anti-Christian because not everybody likes to hear the gospel and not everyone believes in sin and not all will want to hear how they might be living in the wrong way apart from God and they have to repent, they have to turn around. People don't want to hear that. And so the Christian here, the Christians here are being ridiculed. They're being ostracized. They're being canceled even by close family members. They're given all different kinds of negative treatment by their employers and neighbors and people who used to be their friends. They think that they are nuts now. These believers are suffering. And they're just a few short years away from a more violent and state-driven persecution where many who love Jesus would be thrown into jail and some would even be executed. And so these believers, they're in need of great comfort. They're in need of great hope to which Peter points them to and intimately ties to Jesus' own resurrection. This is where we come to our text this morning. And there are no commands in these verses at all. This passage is not about what we need to do but it is about what is already true because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to notice first that Peter actually praises God, he worships him for what is happening within these Christians' lives. That when he hears about that social ostracizing and unfair treatment and the growing stigma of being a believer in a non-believing world, rather than mourn about the situation at hand, Peter gives praise to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Because suffering for the gospel is an indicator that you really believe the gospel standing out because of a real change in your life and not blending in or camouflaging your faith or selling out to fit in is a sign that you have really been born again. You know, Peter knows that these brothers and sisters of his, they could at any moment end all of the suffering. They could end it just like that if they only claimed Jesus at the volume of a whisper and lived outwardly like the gospel were not entirely true. You can end it all just by not living Jesus out and hope more in this life than in the next one. But they aren't doing that. 
they refuse to cave and camouflage their faith or sell out to fit in. And this is why Peter erupts in worship because their suffering for this gospel is an indicator that they really believe this gospel. You know, we can so often respond with sadness and feelings of loneliness and sometimes tears when it is that we do not feel at home in this world. And some of you are the only believers in your family. Some are the only believer in your marriage or in your school or amongst your friends. But rather than look around to the left and to the right, Peter's looking upward to the mercy of God that these Christians actually and genuinely believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Not everyone gets to believe the gospel. Not everyone gets to know Jesus. It is by his great mercy that we do and our sufferings for him and our alienation in this world can actually serve to further prove that we are really his own. You know, Peter's clear here that this isn't bragging about how much we suffer because this isn't their doing. This transformation isn't our doing. But this is an act of the mercy of God who has caused us to be born again. The, the stark difference in what you are now living for and spending for and who you try and raise your children to be is more and more proof that it is God himself who has actually done something within your hearts. That somehow we who are the ones once in unbelief ourselves could now somehow actually live for and unto Jesus Christ shows to us the depths of God's mercy for us to make us his very own and transform us. I think this is the reason why Peter opens up our passage with an outburst of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice secondly that our new birth is not only characterized by an alienation from the world, but it is also marked by a living hope, which is our operating principle in this short life. That rather than bettering our position in this passing world around us, we look forward to a new world beyond what we see in the here and in the now. Let me read to you a quote by John MacArthur. He states this, our one result of our hope is a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future. The Christian is willing to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this present world for the future glory that is his in Christ. In contrast to the buy now, pay later attitude prevalent in the world, the Christian is willing to pay now and receive later. What makes Christians willing to make such sacrifices? Hope. It's hope. Suffering is not our ultimate or even extended reality. Not being popular or cool or accepted, but being the butt of the joke instead. And perhaps getting passed over for a raise. Or having kids who love to come to church and may not fit in with the other kids. That is not forever. And while what we face today is just a fraction of what these Christians faced in the first century, it didn't make their situation bleak or hopeless because they had forsaken this world as their eyes were already upon the next world. These Christians were all in with Jesus. And our hope is alive, it is living, it captivates our hearts, and it changes the way we act in the now. Now, how is it that we can have such hope? Peter explains we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Every time we peer into that empty grave, we know that this life is not all that there is. The resurrection again becomes an operating principle, therefore. 
And just as Jesus' own sufferings and scourgings and mockings and betrayals and denials and the cross he bore and the pain he endured is not ultimately his lasting reality. His death did not have the final say because he rose again from the grave. So the believer in Jesus understands that our lives in this passing world are not final. And our sufferings and rejection and the cross that we are each called to bear are not going to be our lasting reality. Even our own deaths will not have the final say. For the Christian can look death into the face and see through it life. Because our Lord and Savior has risen from the grave. When we believe in Jesus' resurrection as a guarantee of our own, we can spend our days with a living hope born anew because of the mercy of God. You know, oftentimes it is again that we find ourselves in difficult places and in tough situations, and then we look for a quick solution, maybe a change of place, maybe an alteration of this situation. If I just moved here, that's going to solve everything. If I switch careers, that is my answer. And we hope and meditate and contemplate that these things will really do something for us. But so many times it is that we're looking for hope in all the wrong places. Peter wants us here to peer into the empty tomb and know that our hope is in Jesus rising from the grave because his resurrection changes absolutely everything, which means our tragedies that we endure here, which seem to be so defining of who we are, they're not forever, and they do not define who you are. And it also means our accolades and achievements and trophies, so to speak, are also not forever, and these do not define you as well. And therefore, the Christian hope is not to be found in a better-paying job or a healthier body or children who grow up to be upstanding citizens. And our hope is not found in finding that perfect spouse or in the ability to conceive or in the stock market or in fame and in popularity. These are all false hopes that will not last. They are fleeting and distracting at best, but our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus and in our future resurrection because of his own, that we are mere pilgrims passing through who have an unshakable optimism at our guaranteed future, even though we do have to navigate through a turbulent world that can be so unfriendly. But the future is assured as the grave of Christ is empty. Jesus's resurrection changes absolutely everything. Look at me. Uh, look, at, look with me at verse 4, at the description of what awaits the believer and what we have been born again unto. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we're born again to a living hope, and here also into an inheritance that is reserved for God's children. The term inheritance is wealth passed down, or a legacy you receive from one family member to another family member. And here, Peter is using this concept to show us that Christians are not only born again of God, but they are also heirs of God as well. And I'm a fan of NBA basketball, which is in the midst of a playoff season. Go Warriors. And there's a, a player on the Boston Celtics. His name is Jason Tatum. He's 24 years old. He's listed at 6'8", but he's closer to 7 feet tall. He moves like he's 6 feet tall, though. And he's a leading scorer on his team, which is the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, and he hasn't even hit his prime yet. And there's this video clip floating around of his 4-year-old son. His name is Deuce Tatum, and he's sitting on someone else's lap, courtside during the game and his dad dribbles up right near him 
makes a move and shoots a jumper over his defender, mere feet from Deuce's face, and the crowd is as loud as ever. And Deuce doesn't even notice it because the entire time the kid is looking at the screen of a cell phone, maybe watching cartoons or, or Blippi or Coco Melon or something like that, utterly oblivious to everything beyond that screen and everything that is around him. He's oblivious to the sheer privilege that is his own. I mean, normal people do not sit courtside. And normal people do not have people videoing them to put it on the internet. His privilege is because he is the family of basketball royalty, for lack of a better word. And you can tell that this four-year-old has no idea about any of it. For none of that seems to captivate him at all. He is more interested in what is inches from his face more than anything beyond the tip of his nose. How little does he actually really know? And I think Peter here is pulling back that curtain a little bit for these believers who do not feel at home in this world, who feel more like they do not belong, are facing hardships and trials to not focus primarily on what is mere inches from the tips of their noses that this is not what should be captivating the whole of our attention or the reason for our living. Peter here is pulling back the curtain and lifting our chins and directing our eyes to an inheritance which is reserved for family, that you may not belong here. But a time is coming where you will understand exactly where it is you belong and who it is that you belong to. And this inheritance here can only be described in negative terms. It's like Peter can only let you know what it is by letting you know what it is not. All our stuff here is perishable. Get a new house, years later, you got to remodel that house. You buy a new car, park far away so it doesn't get dings, and then you get your first ding. And then your first French fry in the crack. And then your sand in the floor mats. And then you just park it wherever, squeezing it out because stuff perishes here. But what is awaiting for the children of God doesn't go from new to old or from better to worse. It doesn't rust or corrupt over time. Our inheritance is imperishable, and we can only begin to understand it by understanding what it is not. The inheritance is also undefiled. There's, there's this purity to it. And that's not the case with the here and the now. And one commentator notes, there is no marble without its flaw, no flower without its freckle, no fruit without its blight, no face without its blemish, no joy without its taint, no day without its regret, no heart except one without sin. You know, sometimes it is even our best times here. They're defiled by something. You get together with your family and friends, and there's that one person missing because of drama, because of illness. Maybe someone's in the hospital instead. The things we enjoy, there's that tinge that we can't enjoy them all the way fully because there's something defiling that moment. It's not purely pure. But a time is coming again where there is no defilement and nothing to mar its beauty and joy. There's no stain or hint of sin. We can only understand it by what it is not. This inheritance is also unfading. It doesn't get boring the second time around. It retains that joy and beauty. It doesn't lose its taste or its high. There are no diminishing returns, which is unlike everything over here. Everything fades. Everything diminishes over time the more we get used to it. I got to smoke or I smoke meat three times in one week. This is the best thing I ever ate, Daddy. Next day, next day, next day. Can you stop smoking meat, Daddy? <laughs> diminishing returns. 
Not so with the inheritance that is coming. It's not like our highest joys here. It doesn't fade over time. I think it ascends over time. And this inheritance is reserved in heaven for the Christian. And there is no safer place for it to be kept. No more secure location. The inheritance is glorious, just like the place in which it is guarded. You know, brothers and sisters, these terms, these terms describe the very nature of God himself. It's as if you describe the inheritance by describing God, because at the end of the day, our inheritance is really God himself. F.B. Meyer, he says this, our inheritance is God, not the golden harps, not the sea of glass mingled with fire, not rest from pain and immunity from sorrow, not the blessed society of heaven. From all of these, apart from God, we should at last turn away dissatisfied. They are but the accessories and embodiments of something much deeper and more inward and rapturous, the possession of God. God is waiting for us. He is our inheritance. And our portion as his own family is the incorruptible, unfading God of glory who has saved us by his mighty arm and has brought us to himself with his heart of love and is prepared and awaiting the fullness of time where we can enjoy him to our fullest potential. And we will need then resurrected and sinless bodies to do just that. God is our inheritance. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Brothers and sisters, we may not always fit in here. And our dreams and our desires and ambitions may not make any kind of sense to those who do not look beyond this life, but we are the family of God, born into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore born into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you, which is our God, immortal, eternal, and we desire nothing in heaven and on earth besides him. This is... The Christian. Verse 5, we continue with a security for all of those who have been born again. He says, who by the power, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Herein lies our great confidence. The same God who by his great mercy caused us to be born again and by his great power brought Jesus from death to life and by his own glory is our inheritance is here described as guarding us by that same power. The inheritance is guarded for you, and you are guarded for that inheritance. The word guard is a military word. It's used to describe a city defended by a garrison. And every believer and every genuine Christian throughout the centuries and in all the ages have been guarded by the very power of God. But notice the means of God guarding us. It is through faith. God doesn't guard us with literal weapons or walls or hedges of protection or force field. He guards us by our belief in him, our trust in him, our faith in him. That faith protects us. And it's the kind of faith that, at least in this context of first century Palestine, it's the kind of faith they really needed. It's the kind of faith that a believing woman 
married to an unbeliever. She became a believer during marriage. Her husband did not come to Christ with her. And as a result, he's meaner to her now in 1 Peter 3. He ridicules her for it. But it is her faith which doesn't just look at the tip of her nose. She understands that this marriage is not ultimate. But the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, is ultimate. And it is her faith which guards her soul. And therefore, even she can be respectful and pure even to a spouse who doesn't deserve a lick of it. She can have this beauty that is not external, but it is within and imperishably so. How is she guarded? Because of her faith. How can she endure this difficult marriage? Because of her trust in God and her vision of what is to come. It is a kind of faith that a slave would need to have. In the first century, slavery was legal here. You could own people. And the Christians, there were Christians who were slaves and they heard the gospel and they believed the gospel and they were still slaves. And they suffered unjustly in 1 Peter 2.18. Some suffered more because their masters would treat believers differently than the others. Easy target. But again, it is their faith. They're not focusing on just what is right here. That even in the worst of predicaments, it actually transforms my predicament. It actually helps me understand the sufferings of Jesus Christ that much better. He suffered unjustly, and I suffer unjustly. And I can therefore follow in his footsteps and not revile in return, nor have any deceit found in my mouth, nor threaten, nor anything, although most people would think I'm justified to do so. But I entrust myself to him who judges justly. You can read about it in 1 Peter 2.18. How does this Christian make it to that end? By running away? Some did. No, God is protecting him primarily in and through his faith, even the worst of circumstances. It transforms that circumstance to build that faith to long for Jesus Christ more. This letter is a, a precursor to the kind of faith needed to endure what was coming. Persecution, beatings, imprisonment. Peter, the author of this letter himself, would be killed because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he did so willingly because of his faith, which caused him to trust in what was behind the curtain more than what was mere inches from the tip of his nose, because it takes faith to believe these things are true. It takes belief in the empty tomb. It takes trust in the love of God, even when everything around you seems to suggest that he may not love you. How does God guard his people? He guards them through their faith. He protects them by strengthening their belief in him. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, is defined. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. How does God keep his people? How does God guard his children through their faith in him. And brothers and sisters, our faith is the most important thing about any of us. And so on this side of heaven, nurture that faith with all your might. Spend time with the author of your faith. Read the word of God which fuels our faith. Give yourself to the community of God, the church, which builds your faith. Choose to nurture your faith more than you nurture dot, 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 this hobby or this career or this whatever. Nurture your faith more. You got to pour water on one thing, pour it on your faith. Lead your children to nurture their faith. Our job as parents is to disciple our kids. Make nothing else a higher priority than God himself. Not sports, not education, not their worldly potential. For this world is passing away very soon. 
And Christ's own resurrection should be at the forefront of our minds to show us what really matters in this short and momentary life and what we cannot take with us into the next one. The only thing that we can take, the only thing that our children can take with us into the next life is our faith and our belief and our trust and our relationship with our God who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and unto an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by God himself through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe the gospel? Then let us live like we believe this with all of our might. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your great mercy. You could have chosen to deal with us in a variety of ways, and yet you chose mercy and love and kindness and grace and long-suffering even towards the ones who have offended you most. You've given us yourself and your son and the spirit. God, I pray that you would open our eyes more and more to your amazing grace. And Father, I pray that you'd lift our chins as well to look beyond what's just the inches from our nose. Help us to comprehend uh, just our privilege, whose we are, just how good you are to us. Help us to not be intoxicated with passing things, but help us to have the long game in mind. Help us to be wise about how we spend our days here. Lord, we want to honor you and glorify you. We want Jesus Christ to be honored in the way that we live here. Would you build our faith up? Would you use our lives here to display your glory and reflect who you are to the millions and billions of people who may not know you? God, would you use our little church and use us mightily so that people might come to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you make him everything to us so that everything else in the world grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God, we ask for the mercy necessary and the patience necessary. We ask that you'd grow us little by little so that we might eat and drink with all our might to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.